Welcome. Come on in. There are handouts in the back if you haven't already got them, if you'd like to follow along. We are in week three of our Attributes of God study. And last week, if you remember, we covered uh, two of God's incommunicable attributes, the ones that aren't shared with us, his aseity or his self-existence, as well as his immutability, uh, the fact that he is unchangeable. Now today, we're going to move into a couple other glorious attributes of God. His omniscience, the fact that he is all-knowing, and his omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere present. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we praise you for being perfect and complete in all ways. We can't fully comprehend your perfections, but we do thank you for giving us the ability to understand you through your word and through your indwelling spirit. So we pray that you would use those means to help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a reminder as we continue to cover these attributes each week. Now our approach Uh, to help us as finite humans is to cover these one at a time, right? I think that's probably best for all of us. But all of God's attributes are operating fully, completely, perfectly, infinitely at all times. All three persons of the Godhead in a single essence is divine nature, So when we focus on one of these attributes, we do need to remember that all the others are operating fully. And remember that while we're gaining this understanding of his attributes, it's it's very important and helpful, but we also need to learn how to apply that understanding. Uh, That's what ultimately matters. Now the attributes of omniscience and omnipresence give us a pretty clear indication of their nature in the name. Right? They both begin with this word omni, which means all or in all ways. Omnipotence is yet another common omni word, uh, attribute of God, meaning all powerful. And Lord willing, we will get to that next week. By definition, these omni attributes are incommunicable. God. Uh, can be, only God can be comprehensively perfect in any attribute, right? They indicate this all-encompassing nature, lacking nothing. And this general concept of these two attributes that we're going to study may be relatively easier to grasp than perhaps the ones that we studied last week. And there's a good chance you've probably studied or uh, even understand to an extent this concept of God's omniscience and his omnipresence. But understanding that full extent of them is impossible because we're finite creatures. English Puritan Richard Sibb says, how shall the finite comprehend the infinite? We shall apprehend him, but not comprehend him. I I think that's a good distinction. Uh, While this idea of comprehend indicates some sort of complete or comprehensive understanding, apprehend comes from the Latin word that means to grab hold of or to catch the meaning. In our culture, the 
the only ter- the, uh, common use of the word apprehend is when the authorities apprehend a suspect, right? They're grabbing a hold of them. And that's essentially what we want to do. We, we, we won't have full mastery over these attributes, but we want to apprehend them and then grow in our understanding uh, and ultimately grow in becoming more like him. And praise God, we've got the benefit of his word to inform us, right? And the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us understand it uh, and to apply it. So, let's look at our first attribute here of omniscience. Now, our definition of omniscience there in your handout is we are using this definition. God's complete and infinite knowledge of all things, including past, present, and future events, as well as the thoughts and intentions of all beings. So, his knowledge of all things, including past, present, and future events, as well as the thoughts and intentions of all beings. So, number one, God is all-knowing. He's all-knowing. God knows everything there is to know, including all matter, principles, space, laws, minds, spirits, souls, everything. As a result, or He knows all causes and effects, all mysteries, all things unknown and hidden. And then, as a result of that, nothing is ever new for him. Have you ever thought about that? Adrian Rogers said it this way, has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? It doesn't. He never learns anything because there's nothing new for him to learn. His knowledge is complete and it's immediate. He knows everything about all events past, present, and future. Simply put, nothing ever surprises him. And God not only knows about everything, he knows every little detail and is actively involved in creation. He's not deistic, if you've heard that term, where he may have all knowledge, but he's not involved or doesn't intervene in creation. That's not true. MacArthur Mayhew said it this way in their biblical doctrine book, God is not removed from the things he knows. He always has direct, immediate perception of all that he knows. He's directly involved. The truth of God's omniscience can be staggering. Uh, Turn over to Romans 11, and we're going to take a look at Paul's response. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. We were over here in this passage last week as we were considering his aseity or his self-existence. But in verses 33 and 34, we see this reaction from Paul, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? Paul here, after pinning the first 11 chapters of this great letter, he reacts in praise. He's overwhelmed at the thought of the wisdom of God and His knowledge. And for those who know a lot, they actually know very little compared to God's omniscience. Take, for example, Sir Isaac Newton, the brilliant 17th century scientist. He, when he was old, someone commented to him, you must have a tremendous store of knowledge, which is probably a true statement. Here's what he said in response. 
I remind myself of a little boy walking along the seashore picking up shells. The boy has a handful of shells in his hand, but all around him is the vast seashore stretching all directions as far as the eye can see. All that I know is simply a handful of seashells. But the vast universe of God is filled with knowledge that I do not possess. That's a humble response for someone who possessed a tremendous knowledge as a human. And God not only knows all the facts and events of the universe, He also knows our thoughts and our intentions. 1 Chronicles 28.9 says, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Psalm 139.2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. And multiple times in the New Testament, we read of Jesus knowing the thoughts of the people that he was interacting with, demonstrating his omniscience. Matthew 9.4, Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees who were accusing him of blasphemy. He says, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, why are you thinking evil in your, in your hearts? Mark 2.8 He knew the thoughts of the teachers of the law who were questioning his authority to forgive sins. It says immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? John 2, 24, it says that he knew the hearts of all people. It says, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, the people who were following him because of his miracles, For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So number two, God is self-knowing. He is self-knowing. God not only is all-knowing of everything outside of himself, he also possesses perfect knowledge of his infinite self. He's perfectly aware of every fact every facet of his own being. He's fully aware of the power and the wisdom that he possesses. He's full full knowledge of his love and mercy he has towards people. And he knows the full extent of his righteousness and his wrath. In other words, God knows himself perfectly. Also, each person of the Trinity knows the other persons perfectly. We, We discussed this last week about God is self-exalting within the Trinity. There is also perfect knowledge within the Trinity. John 10, 15, Jesus says, The Father knows me, and I know the Father. And the Father and the Son perfectly know the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10, The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So why does this matter? The perfect knowledge among the persons of the Trinity establishes perfect unity within the Trinity. Each person in the Trinity knows the distinctive roles that are to carry out the decree of the Father. So number three, God is all foreknowing. He is all foreknowing. God knows everything that will come to pass. Since we know that God is immutable, which we discussed last week, this knowledge has been from eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, he did not acquire this over time. And not only does he know what will come to pass, he has ordained it according to his sovereign decree. 
Now, as finite creatures, we are in a constant state of change, are we not? We learn over time. And as we learn things, we gain knowledge, the neurons in our brains make new connections. And that's a good thing. But if you're like me, some of those connections have apparently been lost over time, or they're not as strong as they used to be. We have trackers on our keychains, and my wife and I are constantly searching for each other's phones when we lose them, because we don't know where we put them. They didn't move, but um, something lost in our, our minds of where they were. But this is not true of God, is it? He has known everything there is to know, and he never loses it. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. So from eternity past, God has decreed everything that occurs until the end of time, and he knows it all. Scripture tells us that God knows his elect from eternity past. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And this word foreknew is not limited to just foreseeing, but rather relates to God choosing or setting his favor on his elect from eternity past. That verb which foreknew is derived, often it connotes love, affection, in a relationship. Beaky and Cosby say it well. God does not merely look down the corridor of time and know who will believe in him. While that is certainly true and is part of his omniscience, he knows who will believe because he has predestined them to believe. So this is an example of God's other attributes in addition to his omniscience actively at play. His sovereignty at play with his omniscience. Number four, God is all-seeing. He is all-seeing. Now, when we see that God sees, we know that God does not have eyes like we do, right? That this is what we call an anthropomorphism, which we've talked about before, right? It's a way to attribute human characteristics to God that help us understand him better. Scripture tells us that God sees everything that exists in his creation. We see this in the creation account in Genesis 1. After each day of creation, what does it say? It says God saw what he made and declared it was good. And another account later in Genesis is in chapter 16, and I want you to turn there with me. Chapter 16 of Genesis. This is the account of Sarai, Abraham's wife, and Hagar, her maid. When Sarai was not able to conceive, if you recall, she convinced Abraham to sleep with Hagar to conceive a child. And when Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived, she despised Hagar and treated her harshly, and Hagar fled. And while she was fleeing, the angel of the Lord spoke to her. When you see this term, the angel of the Lord, this is God himself. This is a theophany. God tells her to return to Sarai and promises her that she will have many descendants. So if we look in verses 13 
and 14. It says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar calls God El Roy, which means the God who sees. And the well that she was at was named Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. They had very descriptive names for places back then, didn't they? God saw her situation and intervened to give her hope and comfort. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God is all-seeing. Number five, God is all-perceiving. He is all-perceiving. So God not only sees everything, he also understands everything he sees. He sees through it all. Now, as his creatures, there are many things we see, but we don't have a complete understanding of them. We can observe things around us, including the behavior of others, but we don't always have an accurate understanding of people's motives, what's in their hearts, but God does. 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to Jesse to select the next king of Israel. When Samuel first sees Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, he says in verse 6, surely the Lord's anointing anointed is before him. But what does God tell Samuel? Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And then in verse 7, he gives Samuel more information. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Psalm thirty-three, fifteen calls God, He who fashions the hearts of them all, He who understands all their works. And remember, God's understanding is a perfect understanding. Psalm 147, 5 says, God's understanding is infinite. There are no boundaries to the immeasurable knowledge of God. So number six, God is all scrutinizing. He is all scrutinizing. A, a quality of God's omniscience is his ability to know, to know everything down to the smallest detail. And he sees things that may seem inconsequential. In Matthew 10, uh, 29 and 30, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And he also knows in equal detail the far reaches of the universe. Psalm 147.4 says, He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. We're still trying to name stars today, I think. And if he knows all of these details, he also knows all the details of our lives. An important implication. Turn over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Here we see David's declaring the, the far reaches of God's knowledge. Psalm 139, 
we'll look, look at verses 1 through 4, starting in verse, verses 1 and 2. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. Verse 2 uses this literary approach of placing two activities at the opposite ends of the spectrum. Right? When I sit down, when I rise up. And it also conveys the fact that God knows the extremes as well as everything in between. And then verse 3, David says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down. They're intimately acquainted with all my ways. This word for scrutinize here means to sift through, as if winnowing out grain. And lastly, in verse 4, David says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So God even knows what David will say before he even thinks about it, before it's on his tongue to say. So number seven, God is all-remembering. He is all-remembering. So not only God knows all things and all ways, scrutinizing to the, um, the, the, the detail of all things, he also never forgets. Again, another example of how we are not like God, right? God has remembered all the promises that he's made. In Genesis 8.1, he says of Noah, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. He remembers and keeps all of his promises. In Israel's bondage in Egypt, God remembers his chosen people. Exodus 2.24 says, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says multiple times that he's remembered his covenant with his people. Now, I put a couple questions in here of some things that you might be asking. I know that as I was doing some of my study, I would try to think about, well, what might uh, what questions might be asked of, of these truths that uh, we're learning? So, in Genesis 3.9, God asks Adam, where are you? <laughs> After he had sinned and hid himself, right? Did, did God not know where Adam was? Well, uh, of course, we know that God didn't ask these questions because he didn't know where Adam was. But rather, he did so to draw him out and to confront him. It was a way to do that. Alistair Begg says it well. God is not in need of information, so why is he asking a question? When God asks questions in the Bible, it's usually in order to provide information to those he is addressing. So that in actual fact, by posing this question, he's asking Adam and Eve to face up to where they really are. So it was for the benefit of the creature. Also, in the account of Hagar that we referenced earlier, God asked her where she had come from and where she was going. Here, too, God is not unaware of Hagar's situation. He was fully aware and fully sovereign. Rather, he used these questions in that case to show his concern for her and to comfort her. So, these questions are a way of God dealing with his people 
Jesus did this many times with his disciples. He's a teacher who used questions frequently to involve his students and to force them to think and point them to the truth. Secondly, another question, if God is all-remembering, what about him forgetting the sins of his people? Well, is that a contradiction? Well, perhaps maybe an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction at all. Well, God technically remembers our sins. He's all-knowing, right? Let's say cognitively. He no longer remembers them judicious, judicially. I'm hard, having a hard time to say that. As a judge. <laughs> I have it written here and I still can't say it. Judicially. He's chosen to remove them from our account and not hold them against us. Right? Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That does not violate his omniscience, but out of his love for us in the work of Christ, he has removed them from our account. And this is only because Christ satisfied that penalty of those sins that are demanded by God on the cross, right? Hallelujah. That's where we should focus. So some takeaways here on omniscience. When we pray, remember, God already knows everything. We do not need to inform him of something he's not already aware of. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Reminding ourselves of this fact can help us and direct us in our prayers. A.W. Tozer said, God already knows everything there is to know. He knows the thing that you're trying to tell him, and he knows it more perfectly than you do. Whatever we're facing, he knows it completely. Whatever suffering or disappointment, he knows. Nothing escapes his notice. But should that keep us from praying? Of course not. Even though we can't inform him of anything new, he still wants us to pray to him, right? Immediately following what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8 that I had previously quoted, your father knows what you need uh, before you ask him. You know what the next verse is? In verse 9, it's the Lord's Prayer. He gives instructions on how to pray. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing. So prayer is a way to align our hearts and minds with his will. It's a demonstration of our dependence on Him. It's an act of submitting to Him. And God uses prayer as a means of grace in our lives, strengthening our faith, increasing our love for Him, making us more like Him. But it doesn't inform Him of anything He doesn't already know. And that can be a little overwhelming, but should also be comforting to us as well. Number two, God knows His people. As a believer, remember that God knows you and will never not know you. I mean, it can be intimidating to realize that God knows all our thoughts, motives, and desires, right? He knows everything, the angry feelings, the lustful thoughts, the vengeful ideas, secret greed, whatever it is. But God also knows about our longings and our dreams and our desire to please Him as imperfect as it might be. He knows us better than we know ourselves. 
1 John 3.20 assures believers that for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And even with all that knowledge, warts and all, when you were dead in your sins, for those of you who repented and believed in Christ, his love, he made you alive in him. And as a believer, you become known by God the Father in a new and special way through the righteousness of Christ. So what should be our response to this truth? I think Proverbs 4.23 says it well. Watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. As believers, we're to live lives that are in response to His work in our lives. Lives that are obedient to Him. Daily confessing and repenting. And growing in Christ-likeness. Thomas Watson said this, viewing ourselves as under the eye of God's omniscience would cause reverence in the worship of God. God sees the frame and demeanor of our hearts when we come before him. How would this call in our our straggling thoughts? How would it animate and invigorate duty? It would make us put fire to the incense. We must worship God with the utmost zeal and intenseness of spirit. To think that God is in this place would add wings to prayer and oil to the flame of our devotion. Number three, God also knows unbelievers. As we pray for them to come to faith in Christ, we can rest in the fact that God knows them. We don't need to inform him of them. This understanding can reorient our perspective, not only to acknowledge God's omniscience, but also his omnipotence, his power and sovereignty over all things, including the salvation of sinners. He knows. Okay, so that is God's omniscience. We're going to quickly move to our next uh, attribute of God's omnipresence. His omnipresence. This is another omni word. Now, if your mind wasn't stretched when thinking of God's omniscience, His omnipresence probably should do it. I know it did for me. Now, our definition here of omnipresence is God being everywhere present with his whole being at all times. Everywhere present with his whole being at all times. So, omnipresence means that, number one, God is everywhere. He is everywhere. This speaks to the reality that God is everywhere present at all times in the fullness of his entire being. There's no place in creation where God is not present He's a spirit being without a physical body. John 4.24 says God is spirit. And he's without any spatial limitations. He's not confined to a single location. This part of God not being constrained uh, in a space, is there's another attribute that describes that. It's his attribute of immensity or transcendence. He's not subject to the limitations of space like you and I are. While his omnipresence means uh, that he fills every space with his full being, and that's what we'll focus on. So I want you to turn back over to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and now we'll look at verses 7 through 10. So earlier we looked at the first few verses of this chapter where David 
praises God for his omniscience. And now in verses 7 through 10, he praises God for his omnipresence. So verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So similar to the opposites that we observed in verse 2, the sit down and rise up, David uses a literary approach here in a directional sense. So there were four different directions depicted here. In verse 8, heaven, consider north, up, and Sheol, the grave, south, down. And in verse 9, the dawn, the sun rising in the east, And then the sea is being referenced here, the Mediterranean Sea, which would have been to the west of Israel. So all directions. No matter where David goes, God is present. Uh, The 17th century author Edward Lee says in his treatise of divinity, God is neither shut up in any place nor shut out of any place. He's neither constrained within any place, nor is he kept out of any place. That's pretty comprehensive. God's omnipresence does not mean that he's somehow diffused through creation, like gases in a room. He's instead everywhere in all of his fullness, equally present everywhere. But note that the manifestation of God's presence has not always been the same everywhere. Right? His presence at the burning bush was made known far more dramatically than at other times. Right? Uh, at the transfiguration, Jesus' glory was uniquely manifested. And of course, in heaven, he's uniquely manifested to those who are there. But nevertheless, he's still equally present in his divine nature at all places at all times. So, he's everywhere. Number two, God is beyond. He is beyond. Not only is God fully present in this world, He also fills the vastness of outer space. He upholds the sun, moon, and planets for billions of galaxies. Job 9.8 says that God alone stretches out the heavens. And God asked Job rhetorically in chapter 38, Verses 31-32, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Pleiades and Orion are, of course, stellar constellations. uh, And the bear here is likely a reference to the constellation Ursa Major, which is known as the bear. So God not only created this vast universe with its countless stars that we're still trying to count, he also upholds it all. And he does so with his perfect presence. Stephen Charnock says, No place can be imagined that is deprived of the presence of God. And therefore, when the Scripture anywhere speaks of the presence of God, it joins heaven and earth together. He so fills them that there is no place without him. Not a part of heaven, not a part of earth, but the whole heaven, the whole earth, at one and the same time. So, 
He is beyond. Number three, God is immediate. He is immediate in his omnipresence. So not only is God present beyond the far reaches of the universe, he's also everywhere present right here on earth. He's not only present far away, he's also imminently near. He's immediate in that he's everywhere present directly. Immediate meaning without a mediator. This particular truth is known as God's attribute of imminence. His imminence, which means to dwell in or to remain. In Scripture, we see multiple examples of God's imminence with his creation, don't we? He says, I will be with you multiple times. While he's always omnipresent, of course, these statements communicate a special presence guiding and comforting his people. Genesis 26, 3, he tells Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. With Jacob, Genesis 31, 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. With Moses, Exodus 3, 12, in the burning bush, God says, certainly I will be with you. Joshua, in uh, Joshua 1, 5, he says, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Isaiah 41.10, to the Israelites, do not fear, for I am with you. And again, through the prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verse 5, as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And there are many others. The entire canon of Scripture is a first-hand account of God's active involvement in his creation and his relationship with it through his omnipresence. Of course, the most profound and visible way God manifests his imminence, his presence, is in the incarnation of the God-man Jesus Christ himself, right? John 1.14 says of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was imminent. This Incarnation was prophesied hundreds of years before when Isaiah said in chapter 7, verse 14 in the book of Isaiah, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Matthew tells this, this in Matthew one twenty-three as well. So God is divinely imminent, present everywhere, And in the incarnation of Jesus, he was uniquely, physically imminent with his creation. And Jesus tells him, uh, Jesus himself, he tells his disciples after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So number four, God is inward. He is inward. Not only is God present in his creation, he's also uniquely present with all believers. Multiple references in the New Testament declare this. I don't have time to go through all of them, but John 14, 17, Jesus tells his disciples that the spirit of truth will be with you. And verse 20 says, I in you. Verse 23 says that he and the Father will come to him, the believer, and make our abode with him. And in the epistles, we see this as well. Uh, Romans 8, 19, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Um, Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
right? Paul prays in Ephesians 3.17, Christ may dwell in your hearts. So you might be asking, what about in Scripture where God moves down from heaven, right? We read about this in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11.7. God says, come, let us go down. Or Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18.21, God says, I will go down now. In the, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 19.20 says the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. So these descents by God, again, are anthropomorphisms for us to understand Him better. Right? They represent the presence and activity of God in human-like terms. This is a way to help us understand Him better, but it does not contradict the truth of His omnipresence. Uh, secondly, if God is present everywhere... Is he also present in hell? Uh, what about 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that indicates unbelievers in hell will be, quote, away from the presence of the Lord? How do we uh, reconcile this? Well, in this verse, the word presence means countenance or face, which means that the Lord will turn his face away from unbelievers. His countenance or gaze of blessing will be withdrawn but his presence remains there as he carries out his wrath. Third, if God is present everywhere, then why are believers called to be, quote, be filled with the Spirit? Being filled with the Spirit here is not like filling a container that's empty, such as water in a glass. And it's also not equated with the baptism of the Spirit, which happens at conversion. Uh, I think John MacArthur says it well here. The filling of the Spirit is not commanding empty Christians to acquire something they don't already have. Each of us possesses the entire Holy Spirit from the time we repent and believe. So this phrase doesn't indicate that the presence of the Holy Spirit is somehow missing in the believer. Rather, it's a command of believers that's ongoing. It's not a, it's not a one-time thing. So this phrase, be filled here, means to submit to the Spirit's control and influence in our lives by our obedience to Him and His Word. R.C. Sproul says, To be filled with the Spirit is to yield ourselves willingly to His sanctifying work as He prepares us for that final day. So what are some takeaways of God's omnipresence? One, even though God is omnipresent, His divine nature is distinct from the nature of created things. And I think this is important for us to, to understand. This, this sets biblical Christianity apart from other religions, and pantheism in particular, that believes that God and the universe are one and the same thing. Well, God is present everywhere. He's also separate from His creation. Number two, God's omnipresence means He's providentially involved in all things at all times. We should be encouraged to know there is no place we will find ourselves that God is not there in his entire being. Stephen Charnock said this about God's omnipresence related to his providence. He is not everywhere without acting everywhere. He governs by his presence, what he made by his power and is present as an agent with all his works. Every creature has a stamp of God. And his presence is necessary to keep the impression standing upon the creature. So, God's presence in the life of believers 
is for all circumstances of life. Hebrews 13.5, God makes the pledge, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That should be an encouragement to us. Number three, let your inability to completely comprehend God's omnipresence fill you with wonder and praise. Admitting we don't entirely understand an attribute of God is not a position of weakness. It acknowledges the fact that we're not like Him, and it should drive us to be in awe of Him. Thomas Watson said, If God be infinite in His glorious essence, learn to admire where you cannot fathom. So instead of throwing up our hands and saying, I just don't understand it, I give up, I'm going to walk away. Let's remember the truths of God's Word. We declare our dependence upon Him and live confidently in obedience to Him. So, as we close, let's remember these two glorious attributes of God. He's omniscient and He's omnipresent. Now, when we understand that God knows everything and that He is also present everywhere, and if we remember His other attributes such as omnipotence and sovereignty and wisdom, righteousness, grace, and mercy, we realize just how much we are not like Him. But it also reminds us that we have an awesome God that we can trust. So next week, Lord willing, we'll discover, we'll talk about a third omni-attribute, His omnipotence as well as His sovereignty. So let's pray. Father, You know all things and You know us intimately. We praise you that even with this knowledge of us, you extended grace and mercy through the atoning sacrifice of your Son. You don't just sit on your throne in heaven, but you are fully present in all of your creation. You're with us now, Emmanuel, God with us. As we continue the study, may we grow in our understanding of your character, humble us, increase our faith and our devotion, and help us delight in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.